Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELAC825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HD2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, I'm stumbling, and I haven't even had anything to drink on St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy March Madness. Happy Spring Training and World Baseball Classic. Is there anything else I should say happy to you for? I, I don't know, but could there be a better convergence than St. Patrick's Day in March, the first week of weekend of March Madness? Look, if I drank <laughs> more, I'd probably be more into it. But I, I'm I love how happy. Like if you if you are. own a bar right now. You're happy. Could, could you have a better Friday than what you're about to have? No, and actually, my wife and I went out last night. It wasn't even St. Patrick's Day, and the bar was packed with people watching the tourney games. And it was really funny. I ran into an old friend who told me that it's their tradition for 15 years to take the afternoon off and watch the games, which was exactly the conversation we had on last week's show about how I treat this like a holiday and basically do nothing while the tourney is going on. So Sarah was... Yeah, Yeah, but now it is a holiday. It is, but Sarah thought we were going to have like a nice dinner last night. We went to a place mm-hmm. that had lots of TVs, and I don't think she realized that like three games would be on at the same time, including Princeton beating Arizona. So Wait, we, so she, so she couldn't hear you. Uh, no, she, uh, she basically had dinner that, by herself. Really as good. I was, I love her to death, but she, she basically had dinner while I was watching the game and and talking about it. And unfortunately, I helped her pick her bracket where we had Arizona going rather far. So yeah, oh, that, good job. Yeah, that didn't work out well. Again, another reminder, a, a, pretty much a weekly reminder of why I'm happy that I quit betting because because it wouldn't have gone well for me. But I mean, excitement to start the tournament, man! What games yesterday? So does any? Do you think there's anybody in the country that has a completed bracket that that hasn't lost a game yet? It is funny you ask that because you know that I like statistics, well, it's not right? Not that funny, but God. So according to ESPN, all but point zero zero three percent of brackets are toast after day one. That's over like twenty million brackets. So there is somebody who actually picked. Princeton and Furman. Point oh, and some of the other upsets at Penn State beating Texas A and M. Uh, you know, that, some to me, I, but to me that wasn't an upset. I actually, want, if, we picked that. It's unfortunate we ruined the whole rest of our bracket with Arizona, but we picked Penn State. Yeah, but for anybody who's been paying attention to the Big Ten, and most people, at least where we are, do pay attention to that, would know that Penn State is actually a very good team. So, so actually, it was. After the the second game, so after the Furman win, there were still ten point six seven percent brackets left in that particular one. So it was it was Princeton that, that people didn't really figure on ongoing and advancing there. Uh, you know, you know, considering you know, and we had a chance to be at the the coaches versus cancer thing this week, and and you know, unfortunately, there are no teams from Philadelphia. In. But there are teams that are close enough that you can now root for it. Now, it's a little hard for me as a Michigan guy to root for Penn State, but Penn State is still in it and Princeton is still in it. Can I, can I be salty and say Rutgers is still not in it? And they lost in the NIT, uh, but Nevada got smoked. And I, that was you know, the you one. Know, you know, it's like you needed to publicly flog yourself. Well, it, I didn't do it. It's funny because... Both you and I, as our teams yeah. were in the NIT, are still loyal and wearing our team sweatshirt. Yeah, Not that people well, can see that's, that. That's pretty, that's pretty much all I own. So, so. there was a study. I, I know you you love when I bring up statistics of the lost productivity, okay, for the tournament. Mm-hmm. And you know, we see yeah. it every year. So they, they estimate $17 billion lost for the tournament. But the number that got me was... March Madness research and watching soaks up 25.5 minutes per workday of those who participate. 
if you're that's participating, who that's only love. spends love. 25 minutes doing it? That yeah, was my beef the, with the study. Not that, well, you know, you know, you know why? Because people are probably self-reporting and they're, they're not going to admit that they just spent their entire day or yes. half their day. Like now you did and your friend decided to do that. But for the most part, people at least pretend to work. No, through these two days. no pretending. I always enjoyed the old app. If you would watch online, it had like a boss button so you could click it and it would go over to like a spreadsheet so they couldn't mm-hmm. see you doing work if your boss came in the room. That's no longer in the March Madness app. They just figured that you're streaming it all and yeah, watching the whole thing and not being productive. Uh, uh, well, well, not only that, everybody can watch on their phones and their iPads. I just love the fact that there's basketball from noon to midnight. Like games just all day long. And it's not like it used to be where there's like one channel and you got to flip around. There's four games on at one time on four channels. Well, and, that, and that leads to the discussion that we have, I think, every year, which is the, the happiest people on the planet are the executives at True TV. Absolutely. Because, people know where they because, are now. <laughs> but but the, the funny thing is, is every year everybody goes through True TV. What is it? Where do I find it? And then they do it and then they get to the end of the tournament and completely forget, forget where True, True TV, TV exists yes. until the next year. Yes, absolutely. I, it's, it's hilarious to me. I, I did the exact same thing. I'm going to look for True TV and I'm going, wait, I know it's near here. But no, nah, I, w- I was not good. See, but the beauty of the new remotes is that you can talk into them. So you don't even have to <laughs> scroll around looking for it. You just say it and it goes. Oh, we're the laziest society in the world. It's the Ooh. best. Uh, will you be moving for the rest of today or will you be watching games today? Like how into the tournament are you when Michigan isn't there? I didn't normally have Rutgers in the tournament. So I had to be interested in it for other reasons. See, see, for me, there is, there's a cathartic part of this because every year I feel this loyalty towards in my bracket, picking Michigan. And so I you're not encumbered at all this year. Exactly. <laughs> I, you know, Pitt, Pitt is in it and I did go there too, but the problem was, is they were in a play in game. So yes. there's only so much, I'm not going to pick a team to go past the play on playing. Well, we'll see what happens in the rest of the game. So today. who do you have of your final four? Who is left? Do you have all of your final four teams? No, Arizona's out. Um, I Ooh. have three of four and Arizona I had in the final two. So I told Sarah she could just crumple up that bracket that we did. And I'm glad that I wasn't paying for it. And I gave her fair warning when she asked me for help. I was like, you're asking the wrong person at this point. The day I stopped gambling on college basketball is the day I didn't pay attention enough to know in the tournament which team to pick in the 13-4 is going to be the upset. Even though you know every single year there's going to be a 13-4 upset. And if I were in a 12-5 game today, I'd be concerned because there wasn't an upset yesterday. And there's always 12-5 upsets. So yeah, I, everybody was so certain that Charleston was going to win yesterday. Yeah. But is that because people believe in Charleston or people are looking for that 12-5 upset? I think both. I think if you – I mean, for people that actually watch these games, like Charleston, Charleston has this, like, frenetic team that just launches up threes and plays a ton of defense. Yes. And, and they just look like the kind of team that could go far, you know, just having that kind of team. Well, I, I'll Turns keep out on. it was wrong, but I still have all my final four. Well, thankfully, Rutgers got eliminated from the NIT on the first round at why, home. Why thankfully? Because now I don't have to watch the NIT anymore. Uh, I could just wait, watch. Wait, I'll wait, still wait. watch the NIT. Still yes, Come of on. course. Of course I will. Because 
That's what I do. <laughs> you'll even you'll even be watching something I'll be watching soon, which is the Frozen Four. I know. You're oh, I will. Uh, you've mm-hmm. gotten me more into college hockey because of how good Michigan is. Like I watched some before, but I'll I definitely pay more attention now. Plus, there's nothing for me to watch on the professional level here in town, so I have well, to, to watch something yeah, but, but that's co- good. College hockey is actually. I mean, the players are obviously not as skilled as NHL players, but college hockey is a better brand of hockey to watch for the most part, unless. You're from Philadelphia and want to see fights all the time. College <laughs> hockey, they don't have the fights, so I, it's a much quicker game. I don't need to see fights all the time. I would just like to see them win occasionally. That's really, you know, I'm not asking for much. I don't want to get down uh, with yes, Flyers. in Philadelphia you are. I don't want to get down with Flyers talk. I want to talk World Baseball Classic with you before we get to other stuff. And, you know, we've got our Jack Yellow interview, talking Union and, and playing the Champions League. We've got our mm-hmm. Susie Petricelli interview coming up later. So we only get so much time to talk at the start. All right, Jeff, get ready for the takes of the World Baseball Classic should not occur anymore oh, because I Edwin really Diaz hurt himself when somebody gave him a hug celebrating after they won a game. Okay, so for, first of all, this isn't like the uh, all-pro game or the Pro Bowl game in, in football where somebody could get hurt where they weren't going to be doing this. All of these players were in spring training. They were going to be playing baseball. They were going to be <laughs> swinging bats, throwing balls, ground catching rounders and fly balls and running they were going to be doing the exact same thing it just depended on which field you were doing it on so anybody that says the world baseball classic is going to cause my favorite players to get injured is wrong because the very same thing could be happening on a different field on the exact same day at the exact same time it sucks for the mets trust me the jumping up but but if he was going to blow out a knee, jumping up and down, he just as easily, if not more easily, could have been doing it, running to first base to get a ground. All right. So I'm of two minds. You know that I'm a regular, I would rather my team, my players get hurt playing for my team than playing in an exhibition. Like I've, that's been a regular, whether we talk all-star games, that's just where I come from on this. But... Edwin Diaz did not get hurt because he was playing in the World Baseball Classic. He didn't get hurt playing in the game. The thing that concerns me more about the World Baseball Classic is actually the pitchers who would be kind of taking it easy in spring training are pitching in these high leverage games and situations with pressure. Yeah, but, they're be- but they're being monitored and they're not, it's not like they're going long periods of time in games. They're not throwing 100, 120 pitches in a game. How much are the, you the watching? Guy- a little bit, not a lot. I mean, uh, it's exciting. I'll watch a lot of the highlights because I think it's exciting. But it's it, it it it's just there's a lot of other stuff going on. I, I know I'm watching you know? more than you because I'm texting you things, and I know that you would normally be interested in the things I'm texting you, so you're mm-hmm. not watching them at that moment. Uh, no, but but the, but the, but the thing is, is like I'm I'm watching for players that I like and to see how they're doing in that and to. But the thing that worries me, and I've said this before with the World Baseball Classic, is they're not following the new rules that are being implemented this season. And it that is painful. Compared to watching, I watched a World Baseball Classic game early yesterday, and then I watched the Phillies play. They started at like 6 o'clock last night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The difference in the way the game is played now from 
players hitting into the shift in the World Baseball Classic to stepping out and adjusting their gloves 35 times. It's a very different game, and I don't know that I realized it. You know, I, I which, felt which game do you like better? Because you were skeptical of these roles. Now, I, now I, you've only seen them for a month. I like. Are, ba- are you I, okay? So I like baseball, but I think mm-hmm. that there are some managers that have some questions about the time that pitchers get between innings. So I wonder if they make some adjustments. But I like the okay. pace of but, play but, in but, baseball. Okay, so if they add fifteen seconds here or there, other than that, the I like rules it. themselves. I like it. The game moves along. It's it's a little bit faster than I thought it would be. Like I'm used to tuning in and you're you're still in the same inning and now you're like two innings later. So right, but it's but it's not just fa- see so for people that haven't been watching, it's not just faster and less action. It's actually more hits, more stolen bases, more action. There's more everything. And still short. And still shorter. No, it is the mm-hmm. best of all worlds, in my opinion, if you're a fan. Because people are like, oh, you're going to lose this, this, and this. I don't think you've lost anything except for a half hour of the game, which, again, I'll remind people, if you have young kids, the Phillies start at 640. If it's a two-and-a-half-hour game, the game is over by 910 now. Lots more kids, the next generation of any sport that any sport needs to survive, will be able to see these games strictly because of the pace of play and starting them a little bit earlier. You basically right. shaved off an hour. If you're starting a game at 640 as opposed to 710 like it used to be, and you took a half hour off the backside, you've taken an hour off the game for families to be able to get their kids into the games. I'm not talking about the baseball lifers. I'm talking about expanding the future of the fan base. Yes, and, and, and by the way, not only are you promoting the future of the game for the get-off-my-lawn crowd, this is old-school baseball, by the way. You, you are now getting old school baseball because the one thing, one of the things that was lost with all of this stuff is stolen bases. Uh, and they're back. And Trey Turner's matters. wearing oven mitts on both hands because he's going to steal so much. Yep. Yeah. So, so for people that don't get all of Trey Turner's statistics, at least in the early part of his contract, you are going to see an added benefit this year. Yeah, it's gonna... because of his speed. And and if, there should be no question now that Trey Turner will be the leadoff hitter on this team. We have seen teams try to get around the shift by bringing the left fielder in. Uh, we'll see what baseball does about that. Uh, but, I mean, right now it's working. I, I did want to say, though, you know, for people who say, who cares about the World Baseball Classic, nobody's watching. The ratings in the States may be lower. You know, you had 1.48 million people watch the first game, Britain against the United States, which was the largest audience since 2009. But if you look at the Japan-Korea game from last week, 63 million people watched that game. You want kind of a reference for that? The most watched World Series game ever was 54 million in 1980. Yeah, More well, pe- this is this is how you grow the game worldwide, and 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 by the way, Shohei Otani may be doing more to grow the game worldwide than any single human being ever in baseball. Because look what he he came out and pitched the other day. He threw a hundred and two miles an hour, which I'm so glad he's not my pitcher because I love watching it. But do you Why? know you know me? You know that I would be so worried on injured. every pitch. If he's throwing 102 because he's that juiced in spring training. Now, mm-hmm. granted, he's different than everybody else, but it's it's awesome for the game and the atmosphere over there. Some of the games, the crowd with Mexico and the U.S., unfortunately, the U.S. barely showed up for that game. But the crowd before that, 
the, the crowds over in Japan, it, it, it's really fun to see baseball like that. And then yeah, you put on spring training. Then you put on spring training, and it's like fans are just taking pictures in the stands, getting sun for the day. It's just such a different product right now. I will tell you that I have been flipping around watching different spring training games. The, the one stadium that you see almost full, if not full, all the time is the Phillies. Without a doubt. Their fan base is very good. We could talk them for a couple minutes before we hit the break. Um, you know, pitching questions, obviously, painter down. Suarez came back from the World Baseball Classic with some soreness. We'll see if he's going to start. Taiwan Walker pitched fantastic in his World Baseball he Classic. Struck game. out eight and in four innings. He he pitched really good. By the way, speaking of striking out, I moved off the World Baseball Classic. The one story that I really loved was the relief pitcher who hadn't pitched in the majors had stuck out struck out three major league pitchers and then was signed for Nicaragua and then was signed by the Tigers right after the game. Like those kind of stories are cool. Guys who never got a chance now will get a chance because they're playing in in these types of games. What well, you mean the other thing the other thing that's cool is that you and I have covered minor league baseball for a while now. And every once in a while, I'll go through the rosters or just look at the box scores and see guys that were in the minors five, 10 years ago who never made the majors, but are still hanging around just to play in these kind of games. And it shows you how much these guys love. For Just for example, there's a guy named Tim Keneally, who's an Australian guy who was in the Phillies minor league system about a decade ago. And he's now playing for Team Australia, and it's become a big story because his daughter has been chanting, yelling, let's go, daddy. <laughs> and, now, and now everyone has been chanting. <laughs> I mean, those are those are the fun stories that, right. are, that are coming out of this. So what's your comfort concern level with the Phillies? They basically have nobody on the team in camp. They have they're they're on their backup to their backup catcher right now. Real Muto is playing the World Baseball Classic. Stubbs mm-hmm. had hurt his knee. He seems to be OK after getting a game winning double in the eighth inning for Israel and their one win that they had in the game, which was exciting for him. And, and it was fun for before us before they got before, before the perfect game against them. Yeah. Before they got boat race yeah. to the tournament. <laughs> uh, uh, so, you know, Marshawn is out with an injury. So you, like you've got backups to backups in there, but you're seeing some of the bench position battles. It looks like Sosa Stubbs and Harrison will have three bench spots, probably two more spots. Derek Hall's making a case that he needs to be the designated hitter. Just hit his fifth home run. Just hit his fifth home run. Mm-hmm. Scott Kingery, Cody Clemens, Jake Cave seem to be the other guys in the mix right now for it. The one thing I'll say about Kingery, he's not on the 40-man roster. So they'd need to make a move of somebody off the 40-man roster to put him on the roster if he's one okay. of the people they want to take. Who do you- and why not do that? Well, I think what they might end up doing is actually taking Dalton Guthrie off the 40-man roster. He's one for 20 with six strikeouts and no walks in spring training. If he wasn't a righty, I don't think he'd have a chance to make the roster right now, given how he's played. But I don't know. I mean, I I would be surprised at this point if Kingery's almost not on the roster with the way he's played in the spring and the same with all. Well, if you look at the, I mean, I have the 40 man roster up. There are some guys on here that I don't under, like Eric Yulman. I have no idea who he is and why he's on the 40 man roster. Okay. Luis Ortiz. I have no idea why he's on. Plasmeyer. I kind of know why Plasmeyer is going to end up being the fifth starter to start the season. Doesn't that scare you a little bit? Very much so. Yeah. But that's I mean, what's going to happen. Pitchers that you can remove from it, as far as hitters go, you can't move anybody that's in the minor league unless you're going to take Cody Clemens off. 
Yeah, and I don't know exactly whether they do that, but yeah, Plasma. Well, and the other thing is, if, if Kingery gets it, does Kingery do Kingery and Harrison both make the team? I don't think they do. So if Kingery makes it, then Harrison's going to have to be released anyway. Yeah, because I think they wanted Harrison to make the roster for you know some of his versatility. Yeah, I don't... but Kingery has that same versatility. He's younger and he's cheaper. Look, you and I had conversations about Scott Kingery going back with Pedro Gomez when we learned that he was a center fielder in high school. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, you and I are kind of, I think, of the same opinion. The Phillies sort of ruined Scott Kingery <laughs> at the time with yep. not giving any clear direction for what Scott Kingery would be and just letting him be the hitter that he was. But look, I hope the kid gets it. I mean, he's come back and, and overcome a lot. And I wouldn't mind seeing him on the roster because he was a good player at the time and he definitely has talent. Yeah, I mean, there's just some people on this 40-man roster that, that if Kingery makes it, have to go. And it won't be that much of a loss. All right, Jeff, let's hit the break. When we come back, we'll go to our interviews with Jack Elliott and then Susie Petricelli. Stick with us. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. Jeff, something fun. We got Philadelphia Union center back Jack Elliott joining the show after two big wins for the team this week. Jack, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you guys? Uh, we're fantastic. We're probably warmer than you were the other night for the Champions League game. Talk to us about <laughs> what it was like there at Subaru Park and, and what it's like playing in the Champions League games. Yeah, it's, it's something special. Obviously, the other night it was um, a bit different to the week before in El Salvador, but it was it was certainly a special night to advance and get to the quarterfinals of the Champions League. Jack, how important is playing in the Champions League? For, for people that are used to sports in the United States, you just have one season. Where, where in soccer, in, in, in football, you have not only your MLS season, but you have other things that are going on. Sometimes you leave for your country and sometimes you have this situation where you have the Champions League game. How important are these Champions League games for the union players and for you in particular? Yeah, we value the competition very highly and I think um, it's one that everyone wants to win. It proves proves your, your team's worth against uh other teams from countries all around CONCACAF so uh, that's that's certainly something that it 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 means means a lot to us and you know if you win that competition you go into to play in the club world cup against the the best teams in the world so you know it certainly provides a lot of pride for us and you know something that we look to win when we're in it um, and giving it a good go. You know, there, there's a difference in style in play between the MLS and playing in something like the Champions League. Is it hard to, as a, as a MLS player on, a, on the union team, to adjust to switching back and forth between the styles of play? Or has Coach Curtin just set it up that you just play your game? Yeah, I think most of the time we try to play our own game and sometimes the con- conditions don't allow 
for that to happen. Uh, I think we played away in El Salvador. Um, the conditions weren't weren't perfect for us, so we just tried to to get through the game. And I think in this competition, um, you have to take care of business at home and uh, you know just survive away from home, basically. And it's what we did uh, to a T in, in this round of the Champions League. You know, you guys have generally a pretty consistent schedule with the MLS in terms of when games are. How, how challenging is it to have these additional matches, often midweek with the travel, in between your regular MLS schedule? You guys play Chicago Saturday night, then you're playing Tuesday, then you're playing again Saturday. How, how difficult is that for you as a player? It's, it takes a lot uh, a lot of discipline, and you know, it takes a lot to recover from the travel, even within MLS teams, traveling you're traveling two, three hours in a plane sometimes to, uh, to to get to games. And when you're doing international travel too, out of you and uh, it takes a lot of discipline to be able to recover every week and recover to be as close to 100% as you can be every week. You know, Jack, the, the Philadelphia Union is known as one of the deeper teams in MLS. How important as you go through all of this different scheduling, is it to have a team as deep as your team is? Yeah, that's it's certainly a, a huge importance to having a successful run in many of these competitions. I think we, we played a, a, a lot of players in, in these two Champions League games. I think probably played a, almost 20, 20 different players in the game. So... It just shows how deep we are to be able to rotate that much and uh, be able to come out with the results. You know, we, in Philadelphia, we have become accustomed to you and a lot of the union players who've been on this team for this run over the last few years. How important and, and, and what has been the benefit of having a new player like Andres Prey on your team? Yeah, he's a, a, an excellent player. You see the other night, he, he comes into the game and scores two goals to really put the game past the other team, not give them a chance to to really have a go at us. So you, you see the quality that he has and what he brings to the team is, is very important for us and going to be important over the year. And, and you see that with, the, with all the new players that have come in for us. You know, we talk about the depth of the team. You're, you're somebody who's had a front row seat to the growth of this franchise. You were drafted in 2017. You've seen the building of the Youth Academy, the acquisitions. Your first year, you guys only won one game on the road. Last season ended in the MLS Cup. Talk to us about what you've seen of the growth of this organization through your time here. Yeah, I think it's it's been a steady progression. It's not been too high one year and low the next year. I think every year since then, we've done a bit better. Um, and, you know, we're, we're looking to do a bit better this year again and, and win a trophy and um, win the MLS Cup and win the Champions League. You know, we have our, our sights set on as much as we can, as much as we can win. So I think it's been great for me to see how everything's progressed, I think it's been, it's taken a long time. It hasn't just come overnight. Um, and I think every season we've, we've gone one step further. Uh, and I think that's, that's been a credit to everyone in the organization. And, um, 
you know, all the players that, that have come through and uh, have been a part of the, the team for the for that duration of time. I know it didn't end the way that we wanted last year, but talk for a moment about scoring that goal in the 123rd minute against LAFC. I mean, I my wife saw me lose my mind directly in front of her. Talk about what that was like for you. Yeah, I also lost my mind too. And, um, uh, it's, it was it was an incredible feeling, um, uh, but you know, as as it goes, it, it it didn't work out for us, and hopefully, we get another chance this year to, to put that right. Now, Jack, before you got to the the finals, you had to win a conference final, and you got to do it at Subaru Park in Philadelphia. What was it like to win a conference championship in front of that crowd? Yeah, I think that game had uh, a little bit extra zest to it with the year before. Um, the majority of our team being wiped out uh, through COVID, so uh, I think that that gave us more motivation and, you know, it meant a lot more to a lot of people um, that we were able to, one, play in it and two, win the game in, in such a fashion that, you know, it, it really, I think, just felt like a, a huge accomplishment for us to, to get back to the same position and be able to do the job that we set out to do. You know, not many people might believe it seeing you on the field now, but you were actually kind of small and slight as a child. Uh, you've said that aided your development. I'm curious, uh, talk about your youth sports experience and how being a late bloomer helped you become the Jack Elliott we see on the field now. Yeah, I think I was I was uh, yeah, small to average height when I was younger. I wasn't, it was still skinny and, you know, I uh, I managed to work on other ways that weren't brute force to play football and I think that helps me today with the with the way that I play and uh, the way that I'm able to think about the game um, and I think that development was really important for me to to be able to work on my technical side of the game a lot more than you know the physical side which generally comes um, and evens out as as you get older you know, Jack, we, we, we've talked to Coach Curtin in the past and we've talked to a lot of your teammates about how important Coach Curtin has been to their development and just being steady as the team has grown into its role as, as a, a leader. Um, what has been your experience with Coach Curtin and how important do you see him being to this run? Yeah, I think he allows the players to play um, he gives gives people the, the confidence to be able to to play every week and and do play at their maximum every week. Uh, I think he is a certain uh, level of respect for everyone in the in the locker room to to be able to look after themselves and you know that that's something that we do and um, I think that. It just allows people to, to feel more comfortable and confident to, to go out and play for him. You know, you're somebody who was born to, you're English born to Scottish parents. What would it mean for you to get the chance to play for Scotland if you had it? Yeah, that would, that would be a dream come true. I think um, obviously playing professional is a dream come true, but uh, 
that's the the next level for me. Uh, it's something I dreamed about as a kid, uh, running around the back garden, imitating the Scottish players at a time. Um, yeah, it would it would be a, a something incredible in my life. You know, Jack. Last time we had you on was was a couple, I believe, a couple of years ago, and we asked you about cheesesteaks versus uh, fish and chips. Have you had a chance <laughs> to to have another cheesesteak? And is it still fish and chips over cheesesteak? Or are you? I'm <laughs> um, I'm coming around. I'm coming around. It's not so it's not so different now. <laughs> when we get you on next time, we'll see if you've come all the way around. Jack, <laughs> Jack Elliott, we, we continue to wish you guys the best success throughout the season. Thanks for giving us some time and look forward to seeing you out there this weekend. All right, Jeff, let's keep the soccer talk going. Welcome back to the show. Author of Raised a Warrior, Susie Petricelli. Susie, so good to talk to you again. Thank you for having me back. So, Susie, um, I got a text from you that just said in all caps, we did it. so so why don't you tell us what we did well i I shouldn't be taking credit for it that was a collective we Mm -hmm. um no so um johnny infantino i don't know if you guys saw the the the, uh, article but johnny infantino announced today at the fifa congress that um fifa intends to equalize the prize money between the men's and women's world cup by 2027 and which is historic news um and um, they also, you know, part of it, part of the announcement was that they're also going to raise the prize money for this summer's uh, Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and the, the figures I saw were something like 110 million and then an extra 40 something million for preparations for the team. So the details are coming um, and will be coming in the next few days. But it, it sounds like, you know, they, they basically raised the prize money from 30 million um, in 2019 all the way to over a hundred million uh, for the prize purse this summer, which is really amazing. So we're, we're getting there. It was a huge progress, a lot of progress. And, you know, FIFPRO, the global players union gets tons and tons of credit for this. They've been working on it for a long time. And, um, you know, all the, all the national teams have been working together. They had 27 uh, national teams working together on this. So it's really exciting. You know, we've had you on a few times to talk about this over the years. Can you just, for, for our audience, give a little background of, of how we got here? Yeah, well, we got here um, because, you know, obviously women's soccer and women's sports in general are on a separate timeline from men's sports. Um, and I won't get too, I won't get too deep in the history. You know, you guys know I can get really deep in the history, but um, basically when you know, the men's World Cup has been um, growing for 100 years, and the women's World Cup really started to grow in earnest in the, in the 1970s, and, um, and it, there really wasn't an official women's World Cup until 1991, but the women's World Cups weren't getting any prize money until the early 2000s. So the timeline of the prize money, the prize purses were just vastly different right from the get-go. Um, so, you know, at that time, so I think it was 2000, let's see, it would have been 99, 2003. So I think it was like 2003, 2007, when they started giving prize money to the women's um, World Cup uh, teams that were in the tournament. And, but it was growing very slowly. And we got to the point where, you know, in 2019, 2018, 2019 World Cup cycle, they, the men were getting 400 million for their prize purse, and the women were at uh, 30. Right. So, and, you know, 
it was a $400 million gap. And FIFA was saying, you know, we're, we've doubled the prize purse for the next Women's World Cup. But what they weren't saying was, okay, well, we're giving 15 million more for the women, but we're giving the men 40 million more. So the gap in the prize purse was actually growing, which was what was really alarming to me, was that people didn't understand that FIFA was saying, well, we're doubling the prize money, which, you know, from an optics standpoint, sounds amazing. But in reality, the, the gap was growing at a, at a, you know, just an alarming rate. So, um, you know, people started paying attention and people started working on it. And, um, you know, people started growing awareness that the gap was still growing and, and we had a lot of work to do. So, um, but again, FIFA Pro, you know, this woman, Sarah Gregorius has done an amazing job um, and, you know, pulling together uh, all of the, you know, data basically, and, um, you know, getting all the national teams um, internationally on board with the signing the letter. They Apparently they sent a letter in October that was confidential. They just announced, they just released that letter um, this week on uh, Equal Pay Day on three on March fourteenth, and so we've we've got we got a little taste of what was going on, and then you know Gianni Infantino comes out with his statement today at the FIFA Congress in Rwanda, and and um, you know made a commitment to try to equalize it. He he did back away from it a little bit because he was talking about how you know it's really up it's really going to need to be a team effort, and he was calling out on broadcasters and sponsors to try to you know pay the women equally as well. So, you know, and he, he does have a point, right? I mean, we do, we do have to get a point, we do have to get to a place where, you know, the sponsorship and the broadcast rights are, are, um, are at an equal level too. But FIFA, you know, FIFA is a nonprofit. So their, you know, their statutes, um, you know, state that they should be equal, you know, they should be growing the game equally for everyone. Um, and, you know, it, it's a humanitarian mission. So that, you know, they, they aren't necessarily in my opinion, you know, the, the revenue arguments don't hold water, in my opinion. Um, so, you know, but, he, you know, we, they, he made the commitment. He's, he's doing the right thing. And um, it's a huge, you know, it's a huge step forward. And for people who, who say, well, they're making progress, what's the difference? Even this year, with all the progress made, the purse will be $110 million compared to $440 million for the men in Qatar. So in 2027, you're going from a $330 million difference between men and women to hopefully no difference. Can you talk about what that money means to countries that are trying to develop soccer programs and talent? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's just going to be life changing. Now, the, 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 the question also remains, and this was part of the letter that FIFA Pro um, and the countries signed and submitted to FIFA. So the way that the country, so the money from FIFA goes to the federations, and then the federations decide how that money gets spent and where that money goes. So part of the, part of the problem is that in a lot of countries, that money the players may earn, a team may earn money from FIFA, but they don't ever see it. So they don't have any kind of, you know, collective bargaining agreement. They don't have any, you know, structure in their federation about where that money is going to go. So part of the letter that FIFA Pro um, submitted to FIFA was talking about that they wanted sort of a, a commitment to a global collective bargaining agreement that included that at least 30% of any prize money that the women's teams earn goes directly to the players. Um, so there's still still a lot of work to do. There's still a lot of technicalities that need to be working out. But again, the commitment is 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 a big 
positive step. You know, in our country, with regard to the United States, women's soccer has been much more successful on the World Cup level than men's soccer over the last few decades. How much does that success on the women's side play into what's now happening as far as equal pay? I mean, I think it means everything. The women have had to prove themselves. You know, they've had to prove themselves over and over and over. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, in, in the United States, we've been, we were lucky for a couple of reasons, right? We were lucky because we had Title IX that was passed in 1972, which made it, you know, made it basically illegal to spend um, disproportionately more money on men's sports programs in schools than girls sport, sports programs. Um, and so that really started the growth of uh, women's sports in the U.S., but also in particular for soccer, I think I, I think I mentioned this to you guys before, but we were lucky here in the, in the U.S. because sort of the, the existing male sports hierarchy, you know, soccer was not at the top. So the people that were really in control of that hierarchy in the U.S. didn't care at all, really, about who played soccer. So there wasn't any, like, you know, control over it or sort of territorial feeling um, about soccer in the U.S. So, so, you know, girls benefited from that because we were, you know, we were able, you know, people actually, dads were promoting their kids, to, their little girls to play soccer, first of all. And it was an easy way for schools to come to start to grow towards uh, Title IX compliance as well, right? Because it was relatively inexpensive. The teams were pretty big and nobody, and the guys at the top who were threatened you know, they didn't want girls still playing American football. They still didn't want girls in baseball, but they didn't really care about soccer. So we benefited from a lot of things um, historically that other countries haven't benefited from. Um, and so, you know, soccer went from like the 20th most popular sport in the, U in the U.S. for girls to like the third most popular sport in like 15 years. Um, so it's been, you know, we, we lucked out. It was some funny little things in history that made us, that made, uh, grew us to this point where we're still, you know, a dynasty in women's soccer around the world. We talk about more opportunities for revenue from broadcasters and sponsors. Um, a FIFA report showed year over year broadcast revenue grew 22%, but at the same time, just 7% of clubs go globally said that they had more than a million in revenue from matches, broadcast, commercial, and prize money. Last week, we talked with um, Kate Fagan about her book, uh, Hoop Muses, dealing with the rise of women's basketball and impact on pop culture. And we talked to her about the next WNBA TV deal and the opportunities there potentially for them to have storytelling that advances their brand. What has been done and can be done on the women's side of soccer and soccer in general to advance the brand and increase some of these revenues more? Yeah, I mean, it's happening, you know, it's happening all over the world. Um, the, you know, women are, are earning places and are creating spaces um, for ourselves in sports media and, you know, you know, like over the top um, type of, of media situations where we're, you know, we tried for a very long time to break into mainstream sports media and that just, we didn't get very far, right, to be honest. I mean, we, we went from, 4% of, of, of mainstream sports media in the US, like 20 years ago, we went up to like 6% <laughs> and now we're back to 4%. Um, so, you know, we just, we've had to be creative. We'd have, we'd have had to think outside the box, um, but it is happening all over the world. And, you know, there's, and also we have this new generation, you know, that's so comfortable on social media and they're so comfortable just starting their own blog and starting their own podcast that, um, you know, it's, it's growing organically and it just takes time, you know, it takes time to learn the history. It takes time to, to learn, um, you know, 
even, you know, I was working for Ata Football, I think maybe one of the last times I was talking to you guys and, and, um, you know, it's, it's not as easy as just, you know, flipping a switch and all of a sudden, you know, broadcasting women's sports, you have to have people understand the game. You have to have people understand the history of all the players. You have to have someone like Julie Foudy has, who has been in the game for, you know, 40 years. Um, it's not as easy. It's not as easy as just flipping the switch and saying, okay, time to put on women's soccer. It takes time. It really does. How important is this, this development to the game of soccer in the United States, as far as women go? The equal pay announcement? Yeah. I mean, how, how will this affect things like the NWSL? I mean, I think one of the things that it does is it's, it's going to make the excitement for both the men and the women in soccer just so much greater. I mean, the teams are going to be cheering for each other, right? I mean, you got to think also, right, now that the women are getting paid more, like half that money goes to the men's team, right? Like that was the agreement that they made. Um, so like the, the whole country is now going to be rooting for, for each other. Right. The men's team is going to be rooting for the women's team and the women's team is going to be rooting for the men's team. And it, it just builds this this beautiful, cohesive, you know, one team, one nation thing that we've always talked about. But but we haven't really you know, put it into action. Um, so I just think it's going to be a, a beautiful thing and it'll gonna, it's going to you know, change the culture and build really like like a just a beautiful um, collaboration between the men's and women's teams. Well, have you seen that before? I mean, it, uh, over the course of time, have you seen that the, the men supporting the women as far as not only this fight for equal pay, but advancing the sport of women's soccer in the United States? I mean, I guess if I'm completely honest, I think most men probably couldn't be bothered caring very much about women's soccer. And, I, and I'm and i going to say that honestly, and I'm going to say that goes pretty much across the board. But I do think that's changed a lot in the last 40, 50 years, particularly since Title IX. And I think attitudes have just changed. People are realizing that, you know, women's sports is equally as entertaining, sometimes more entertaining than men's sports. But it takes time to change those attitudes. Those are longstanding, you know, attitudes and, and cultural norms that we've had to shift. I mean, think about like just sayings like, you know, play like a girl, right? Like we've had we've had to intentionally change people's minds from thinking like playing like a girl is a pejorative, right? Into thinking, and, and now we all know playing like a girl means you're empowered. It means you're fierce. You know, it means you're you know faster than you know just as fast as anybody else. Um, but it, we've had, it's been hard. I mean, look, we just had Carlos Cordero, right, the president of U.S. Soccer, just a couple years ago, in his court filing in the U.S. Women's National Team case. The court, you know, his argument why they should men, women shouldn't be paid equally was that they were inferior athletically. And that was just a couple of years ago, right? So, I mean, we, we, you know, things have changed and they are changing quicker. Um, but, you know, you, you mentioned to me that article, I hadn't seen it yet, but the, the article about uh, Claudio's comment, Claudio Reyna's comment about the women refs, I hadn't seen it yet. And, um, you know, I think that sadly, there, there, that was the attitude, right? That was the attitude that a, a female ref wasn't going to do as good of a job as a male ref, uh, particularly, I mean, I think his point was on a, on a big, important game like that, why have a female ref, right? I mean, so it's it, like those attitudes are still so disappointing. Um, and I think that it, it does show, however, positive progress because, because that statement came out in public, the the reporting around it is that because he made that statement, he's not going to get another job in U.S. soccer, which I think, you know, it's it, that's a huge shift in 
in attitudes and um, and the way we think about those attitudes, right? Like that's that we're, what we're saying when we're saying that is that doesn't belong in U.S. soccer culture anymore, right? And I think it's I I think it's all a step forward. How important is it for the U.S. men's team to move past this all, whether or not Greg Berhalter is there or not? You saw Christian Pulisic come out and say this is childish. Um, you had a top player for the team not get time during the World Cup when people saw clearly he could make a difference out there. The World Cup is coming here in 2026, and we currently have nobody in charge of anything over there. Uh, how important is it that the U.S. men's team get their things straight and in order to keep moving in the direction of making progress that we're seeing with the growth of these young athletes coming into the program. I know. I mean, I, this could be a, this could be a conversation, a long conversation for another day, but um, you know, obviously I think there was childish behavior on both sides. Um, and, you know, there's a deep history between Berhalter and the arenas. Um, and I think we probably have just scratched the surface about what all of that history really is. Um, and but I think it what it, to me what it speaks to the most is that that like nepotistic culture and like that small world of people who were grew up together and were running U.S. soccer completely on their own in this bubble. I, I think that's what needed to change. Right. Like these like it shouldn't be that way. Right. It, it should be like it should be a more diverse group of people that's in charge and making decisions and, you know, evolving U.S. soccer um, with a, you know, a more open mind. I think, it, you know, it, to me, there's, to me, there's structural and infrastructural changes that need to be made from grassroots all the way through the national team level in U.S. soccer, which I think is, you know, we would, we could, I'm happy to talk to you guys about, but it's a very long conversation. Um, but I think, you know, I have a lot of faith in Cindy, Cindy Cohn. Um, I think she's an amazing leader. She's proved herself to be um, just an incredible, you know, president for U.S. soccer. Um, and I think they're making really good changes um, from top to bottom. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give her a chance to, you know, keep, you know, in her job for another couple of years and really continue making making the changes. I have faith in her. You know, you talked about the the kind of nepotistic culture that used to exist and how important it is for that to change. If you're going to change anything, if you're going to change diversity in any aspect, you have to have representation at all levels. The NWSL is about to, to welcome three more teams. One of those teams, Boston, is going to have all female ownership. What does that mean to the sport? And what does that mean to the country? I mean, it's, it's amazing. You know, I mean, the announcement this week from the Utah, the new Utah Royals team, the reinvented Re Utah Royals team is, is uh, very exciting. Um, you know, I think also to me, the, there's a really interesting piece to that story where, you know, the Utah Royals actually, she just had this woman, Michelle Hinsick, who, who happens to be a um, Harvard women's soccer alum. Um, shout out to Harvard Women's Soccer. Um, but, but she uh, was the general counsel for the original team, the Utah Royals. And she had the wherewithal to put a buyback clause in their clause before the team uh, the team moved to Kansas City. Um, so when, you know, now they've executed that option. And so they got to buy back into the NWSL for $2 million, where the other two teams, Boston and the Bay Area, had to buy in at $50 million. Um, and so, you know, no surprise to anybody, Michelle was just appointed president of the team. Um, they they know, better give her something yeah, after that. <laughs> the, the two new billionaire owners, you know, $48 million right off the bat. So, 
Um, but all this stuff is really, really cool. There's this amazing woman at Harvard women's basketball and not trying, not trying to shout out everybody at Harvard, but Harvard women's basketball player, Jess Gelman, um, who runs the MIT Sloan uh, sports analytic conference. And she's one of the main investors in that Utah Royals team. Um, so knowing her expertise and how intelligent and thoughtful and um, experienced she is in, in the sports world on the men's and women's side, um, and knowing that she chose for her investment to be a, an NWSL team, and she's a basketball player, um, it just gives me so much hope and it makes me so confident for the future of the league. So before we finish up, just just one more from me. Are, are we seeing any progress? We've talked to you a lot before on, on the abuse and misconduct front, and we talk about kind of this insular organization that has allowed some of these things to happen. We've seen reports come out. Are we seeing progress as we go forward now from that to make the sport safer for these athletes now that we're going to be compensating them better finally too? You know, I know they have a lot of structures in place and they have a lot of like task force and things going on in the NWSL and they're working really closely with the players. Um, I believe um, some of the players that were some, where the whistleblowers are leaders now on those task forces. Um, so I know they're, I know that they have the best intentions as I know they're trying really hard to correct the things that, that they were doing wrong. Um, so we'll have to see, you know, I, I'm, I'm hope I'm very hopeful and, but I don't think that we can stop watching what's going on and just assume everything's going to be okay. Um, I think it's really important to keep an, keep our awareness up and keep our eye on what's going on with the new ownership groups. Um, and just, you know, continue to listen. Um, cause that was the problem that was, was happening before, right. As we just, people weren't listening to what the players were saying. Um, so I think as long as we keep listening to what the players are saying and keep paying attention to the, to the culture in the front offices, um, and just, you know, keep the, you know, keep the lines of communication as open as they try to create the structures for the reporting and the accountability and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful there, but you know, there was a, there was a lot to change. I mean, it was almost every team in the end of a cell and, and with so much change, right. If you force change too quickly, then, you know, you're always in danger of, of making, making new, either new mistakes or making the same mistakes. So I just hope everybody keeps an eye on things as the, as the new teams develop and as the new ownership groups take hold um, you know, we just need to make sure to not, not, we, we just can't stop paying attention. You know, your book raised a warrior it didn't come out that long ago, but if you could go back and talk to the Susie who was writing mm -hmm. that book, could you have pictured the changes coming as fast as they did? I mean, you know what, actually until from yesterday, when I texted you, Hey, the, <laughs> or two days ago, when I said, Hey, there's been some movement FIFA, you know, announced a FIFA pro announced that they wrote this letter to FIFA you know, and, and they're ready to announce it. That was just a couple of days ago. And then to today, when, you know, Infantino actually says out loud in public, FIFA is committing to equal prize money by 2027. I mean, I, my, I actually didn't even believe my eyes, you know, I actually, my advisor in my, in my program, um, he, he called me to say congratulations and I hadn't seen the news yet. So I was like, oh, that's funny. What is he, what's he talking about? And I, I would ne I never imagined it would happen this fast. I actually had a bet with someone. We, I had a bet with someone that, um, that now we'll, I'll have to pay. So, uh, um, <laughs> Glad yeah. gladly, right? <laughs> yeah, gladly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic. It happened so fast. I, I, to be honest with you, from the research I was doing and the, and the people I had been talking to, we had been hoping, right. Working towards 
like a like thinking that it may happen in the next two or three World Cup cycles, you know. So the fact that he's ready to do it by the next World Cup cycle is, or at least committing to doing it by the next World Cup cycle is really, you know, just amazing. It's incredible. Well, we can't wait to see what happens next and always appreciate you giving us a little bit of time to talk about it all. Stuzi Petricelli, uh, you have a good day and uh, let's keep the progress going. All right. Thank you guys. Thanks so much for having me. You know, the discussion with Susie is always a good one and she brings up a lot of really good points. And one of the points that that we talked about with her even off the air was that women's soccer really hasn't had a chance to see what their value is in the open market with regard to broadcasting. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of years when they're able to do that. I think it's going to be huge for the sport. It's the same thing we talked about with Kate Fagan about the ability for them to brand themselves, to create their own narrative separate from the men's game so that women can look up to women, not through the story told from men. I just think it's going to be really important for growing the game in women's sports and the progress, even since we started talking to Susie, is amazing. Let's hope it keeps going. Any final thoughts, Jeff? Another weekend of March Madness, eh? Oh, I can't wait. Definitely going to watch. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.